Uh, we're continuing our series that we've begun and that will continue this term uh, in the book of Philippians, uh, and we'll look at that passage that Tim has just brought to us. Let me ask for God's help, and uh, we'll pray for that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this letter that Paul sent to this little church uh, in Macedonia. We pray today that these words may live to challenge and change us. We thank you, Father, that you are alive today and that by your Holy Spirit you can do this. We ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you uh, can tell looking at me, uh, but uh, I'm a big fan of basketball, and uh, I played for about 10 years. And uh, I know I'm the sort of intimidating physical presence that you would anticipate uh, in basketball, but, uh, but I, I love the game. It's actually one of my, my favourite uh, favorite things, uh, until my knees wore out, and that's why I cycle these days, uh, instead of play basketball. But I absolutely love it. Great game. Now, I started watching the game in the 90s. So anyway, you're alive then. When I do it tonight, I'll have to look at the guys and say, none of you were born then. <laughs> But, uh, but in the 90s, there was someone who was very famous, and uh, I want to show you this ad because it was what I was thinking at the time. Okay, the rest of you are going, who's Mike? Is that right? Does anyone know who Mike is? Okay, very good. All right, okay. So here's the thing. Growing up, you wanted to be like Mike, okay? Now, admittedly, I'm not six foot six, and I can't dunk the ball, and I'm not black, and I really can't play basketball well at all, but I wanted to be like Mike, okay? That was, that was the thing. I, I wanted to be like Mike. I happened to sell a whole lot of Gatorade at the same time, but, but that, was, that was what I was thinking as I was practicing hours and hours on, on my little concrete court. I wanted to be like Mike. Problem is, being like Mike probably isn't such a good idea. See, Mike was great on the court, not so good off the court, uh, done for gambling, uh, had an affair, broke his marriage apart, cost him $168 million in the, in the settlement. Uh, he's owned a couple of basketball teams that have gone worse uh, with his leadership, and uh, apparently he has no friends at all today in the basketball world. No one will hang out with him because he's just so competitive and mean. So I, I read this quote. Stars are as flawed as we are, and sometimes idolizing them blinds us to the facts. Maybe we shouldn't try being like anyone. Sure, there are things we can learn from anyone who reaches such a pinnacle of success. There's nothing that says we have to take all or nothing with players. Appreciate them for what makes them great. There's some wisdom there, I guess. Have any of you, that was my hero, he's totally flawed. Do, do any of you have any flawed heroes? My question really probably would be, do any of you have heroes? Because whoever they are, guess what? They're flawed. And that can be distressing, and it can be hard if you've decided I'm going to model my life on someone in particular. Today I want to tell you from Philippians chapter 2 that we're going to try and do two things. Two things. I want to encourage you to be like the one you worship. I want to encourage you to be like the one you worship. And I want to tell you, don't be the one you worship. Be like the one you worship. Don't be the one you worship. Well, let's start off with uh, the second one. We're going to have a look at um, Philippians 2 here in a, in a moment. Uh, there was a great little story I saw in the news this week that came from Lyon in France, where they were uh, putting in a block of apartments and managed to uncover a Roman village. I imagine that was quite inconvenient for the people who were waiting for the apartments to be built, 
but they said it's basically a mini Pompeii, the best discovery that they've made in the last 50 years, totally preserved underneath the city of Leon. See, it was always there. And what they're doing is they're busily uncovering it. What I want to show you is there's something that we as a church need to uncover as well. Have a look with me at Philippians 2 and verses 1 to 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. It's really interesting. Paul uh, says to the Philippians, as he writes this letter, he says, I want you to uncover a unity that exists. I want you to uncover a unity that exists. Often when things are hard, you say, well, we need to all be united. We need to get united. So let's hold hands, obviously, and sing kumbaya, because apparently that's the thing you're supposed to do when you're getting united. That's not at all what Paul says to the church. He says it's actually a unity that exists. It's a unity with Christ. It's a unity from his love, and it's a unity in the Spirit. He said that unity exists in the church. You need to just uncover the reality that exists because you are one by Jesus. There is one Holy Spirit who dwells in the hearts of every one of you, and it's his love that unites us. You need to uncover what already exists. Once you've uncovered it, that's not enough to go, hey, look, there's the Holy Spirit. Not what we're doing. We need to express that unity, he says, in three ways that actually match up pretty well. He says by being like-minded, by having the same love, and by being one in spirit. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So here's a unity that you don't work to create, you work to expose and express. It's God's unity that he builds into the church by virtue of winning her and filling her. So here's a question. How does knowing unity already exists in Jesus change the way you live it out? How would it change if you knew that in this building here we're actually united together? So if I've got an issue with somebody, right, it's, it's actually a blemish on the body of Christ because we are united. So we need to tear away whatever separates us and express the unity that exists. It's a different mindset, isn't it? Not creating unity, but exposing the unity that God has created. What do you think about this bloke, hey? <laughs> If, you, um, if you're thinking about a word for him, I, I, I was trying to work out what word I would, I would pick. Maybe some of them aren't worth putting up on the screen, but th- this is the one I like. Conceit, right? Just pretty happy with himself. I mean, if, if you had a moustache like that, maybe you've got rights to me. I, I don't know, but um, he's, pretty, he's pretty conceited. We might even say full of himself, possibly. Uh, vain conceit is something on Paul's agenda here. Have a look with me at verses 3 to 5. He goes on, he's speaking to the Philippian church. He says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Do not, uh, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. It's a pretty spectacular passage, isn't it? I love, I love what he has to say to us. He says here, do nothing. Do nothing 
out of selfish ambition. Now think of all the spheres that you're in. Think of the places where you work, the places where you play, in your family. Do nothing to advance yourself ahead of others. That's pretty challenging, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm pretty important. At least more important than you, hey? Yeah, is that right? They used to have that ad. Do you remember? For the most important person in the world? You? They don't put it on anymore because it was too obvious, I think. I think. But, but here's the thing. What, what would it mean for you to do nothing out of selfish ambition? What if we were to value others as more important than ourselves? See, that's not even just a mind game. It's actually to say, you are of more value than me. I'm going I'm to invest you in the worth that you have as a child of God. See, why do I need to step on your head in my selfish ambition? Is because you're just a stepping stone to my advancement. But when I see that you're loved by God, that his son Jesus died for you, I start to see your value. Value others as more important than yourselves, Paul says. And then he gives us this challenge about what it will look like, looking not only to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I think the lifesavers are a perfect example of that, aren't they? It's a beautiful day at the beach. We're all having a brilliant time, and their job is to look out for you and make sure that you have a brilliant time. Imagine being in that lifesaver mindset. I'm looking out for your interests before mine because I value you because I'm doing nothing out of selfish ambition. It's pretty challenging stuff, isn't it? So here's our opening challenge. Don't be the one you worship. And when we say worship here, it means the one that you're seeking, devoting time and energy to honouring, don't have that one be you. Don't be the one that you worship. And so I want to ask you this morning, if we're being a bit honest, just the two of us, where where do you look first? And when you say, oh, I always look out to the needs of my family before myself, I'm always doing that. Where do you look out to first when you're tired? When you're grumpy? When you're a little bit frustrated because of something, not that they did, but something that's happened in the other sphere of your life. You come home and all of a sudden it's, well, they did that to me, I'm going to seek myself here, can you? Is this resonating with anyone? Okay, I'm going to to guess that silence gives assent and you're saying, yes, I'm with you. All right, so where do we look first? That's your challenge. And then where is it hardest to value others above yourselves? So where do you find yourself belittling the worth of others such that they are worthy steps to your advancement? What sphere have you decided? Obviously, you can't do it at church, right? That'd be awkward. But look, when I'm out with the, with the world out there, I'm really happy to step on some heads. Who would know? I'm not going to tell my life group. So where is it hardest to value others above yourselves? Don't be the one you worship. Well, that's a a pretty heavy challenge to get started, isn't it? Uh, I love uh, looking at uh, kids being like their parents. So kids looking to their parents saying, I want to be like dad. So not like Mike, but like mum or like dad, 
I want to imitate, have the imitation of my parents. I really love seeing that. And some of those things that we see our kids do, okay, we go, oh, you're just like your mum. And, and that's a compliment. And then there's that other one, you're just like your dad. Well, that worked, didn't it? It's always the dads that's the downside. Okay, um, so here's the thing. We, we love it when our kids are, are, are imitating uh, their parents. There's a beautiful encouragement to imitation in this passage here. Have a look with me at verses 5 to 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, there's an encouragement to imitation here, and the one that we're to have front and center is the Lord Jesus. And what do we see he did? Well, he didn't grasp hold of the equality with God the Father he had. He didn't do that. He could have held on to it. He could have used it to his own advantage. Instead, what he did is he poured himself out in love for those he was serving. He didn't grasp hold for his own advantage, but poured himself out for those he was serving. And he did it to such an extent that he humbled himself even to death on a cross. That's how much he valued, treasured, sought the good of the other, even to his own death on a cross. Well, that much is clear, but I I want to spend some, some solid time in this sermon today digging into the details. We're going to see who Jesus is. I said to you at the start that we want to not be the one that we're worshiping and that we want to be like the one we worship. Today we're going to do some hard work on understanding who it is that Jesus is and why he might be worthy of your worship. Why would he be worthy of your worship? So I want to have a look at some of the hard bits of this that might trip us up. So maybe in your life groups this week you're reading through and you said, why does it say that? We had a good moment in our life group, didn't we, Carrie, with people saying, what about this turn of phrase? Why is that there? So what I want us to do is to focus on them and see why they will help us understand who Jesus is and ultimately to worship him. So have a look with me. In, uh, in verse 6 it says that we have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. So what does that mean? What does it mean to him, for him to be in very nature God? Well, it goes on to the next line, doesn't it? did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So here's where we need to start. Jesus is equal in value to God the Father. Jesus is equal in value to God the Father. Jesus didn't seek his own advantage. So imagine if you were suddenly promoted. Uh, Have you seen Bruce Almighty? Okay, don't worry. If you haven't, Rent it, it's good fun. A little bit irreverent at various times. But the idea is, ordinary person, elevated given the powers of God. You don't like how God's running the world? Here they are, go sort it out. Mayhem ensues, okay? But the reason it does is because what Bruce does is he seeks his own advantage. He has the powers of God and he uses them totally selfishly for his own ends. Here is Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, 
did not consider himself something to go, I'm going to hang on to all that power and direct it to my own ends. He chose not to do that. He didn't seek his own advantage. In this sense, remember what Satan whispered to, to Adam and Eve? If you eat this fruit, you can be equal with God. You can be the same as God. Take the challenge. Have a bite. And they looked at it and they considered that being equal with God would be awesome for whose worship and advantage, do you think? Their own. And here's Jesus who had the opportunity to exercise that equality with God to his own end. And what did he do? He did not. He did not follow Adam in that path. And so I want you to see here, because Jesus doesn't sin and did, ne did never sin, I, I want you to see Jesus is actually divine. He's divine. He is divine. That's our first point, being in very nature God. The second challenging uh, statement we have here is, he made himself nothing. We see this in verse 7. Jesus made himself nothing. Does that mean that he, uh, he totally left all godliness or godness behind and became like a street sweeper or something like that and uh, totally fell from heaven? Does not mean that. But here's something that it does mean. It says, he made himself nothing. Where would we pick up the story if we didn't think Jesus was God? Where would we start the Jesus story? Can anyone think? Birth? Where was that? Bethlehem, very good. Cows, sheep, star overhead. Sometime later, Magi, all the rest of the Christmas malarkey. Okay, right, okay. You'd start there, wouldn't you? But here's the thing. If you start there, the baby can't have emptied himself. Well, if you're in that stage of parenting, you know about how babies empty themselves, but that's not what we're talking about, okay? How could Jesus have emptied himself to become a human? The only way it's possible is if he existed prior to his arrival in the manger in Bethlehem. Are you with me? That's a pretty mind-blowing thought, isn't it? The Son of God existed prior to his birth in the stable in Bethlehem. It's awesome, isn't it? He must be pre-existent. To have emptied himself, he had to exist before he emptied himself. How did he empty himself? He did this by becoming a servant. And we think to ourselves, of course, yeah, 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 boring. Well, Jesus became a servant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. The Son of God, worshipped by angels, the pre-existent one who spoke all creation into being, is born in a manger and seeks to serve human beings. Extraordinary. So when it says he emptied himself, it's not that he unbecame who he was, but that he humbled himself to such an extent by becoming a servant. It's extraordinary. Jesus chose to leave the glory he had for all eternity to become our servant. Just think of how far he came to be spat on and crucified. The one who spoke creation into being became our servant. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And so we, we have it, this, this phrase turn up again a little, a little bit later. Uh, you'll see it there, uh, verse 8, uh, being, uh, being made in human likeness. Sorry, the end of verse 7, being made in human likeness. So what does that mean? First, it means he was truly human. He was truly human. Jesus slept. You saw him in the boat, didn't you? 
uh, he was sleeping in the boat when the disciples woke him and said, Master, don't you care if we drown? Superman doesn't need to sleep. The Son of God was asleep in the back of the boat because he was truly tired. He was truly human. Peter lived with Jesus for three years, with him the whole time, and he said he committed no sin and no deceit was found on his lips. Jesus was a man who knew no sin. He was truly human but without sin. How many people do you know like that? I'll save you the thinking. You don't know anyone like that. Everyone we know who's a human being sins. But he was one who was without sin. So likeness here implies there's more to Jesus here, not a trick or illusion. Let me just slow that down for you. He's truly human, yet he has no sin. So when it says he's made in human likeness, it's not saying he's a fake human. Do do you get it? He's in appearance as a human, but if you met him, you'd assume he's sinful like you. He was without sin. So he was made in human likeness. He took the form of humanity, but Jesus bears humanity unspoilt by sin. Are you with me? Great. Excellent. Being found in appearance as a man, he became obedient to death. So again, you're going, right, 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 right. So there's the real spiritual Jesus who kind of has a sheet over the top called his humanity, right? So there's, he, he's only looking like a man. He's actually just God with kind of like a mask on. No, not what it means. I'll tell you why this is so important. Okay, first of all, Theology 101. If you're God, you can't die. Everyone with me so far? Because if you could die, you wouldn't be God. Stretching you? That's okay, right? The divine cannot die. Humans cannot die for the sins of others, right? So if I really like you, I might be able to, I don't know, do something at your place for you, but I can't die for you. I've got my own sins. And God says that the punishment for sin is death. So I need to die for my sins. Even if I like you, I can't take your spot. Are you with me? Human beings can't die for the sins of another. But humans can die. We all have some experience with this. Let me put this together for you and show you why Jesus is awesome. Jesus is God incarnate, God in flesh. The only one who can die on the cross for the sins of others. Because he's God... He can bear your sins because he has no sin himself. Because he's human, he can die. God has to send his son who is fully God and fully human, otherwise it won't work. Let me show you this on a graph. You're excited, I can tell. That's good. Okay, all right. So I was trying to think about, when, when, Australia, when Australians think about this, we, we, we get it all mixed up. So how can you say he's fully God and fully man? It's really confusing. Guess what? You're joining 2,000 years of Christian history, okay? On one hand, you can say there's a, a continuum from human to divine. On, on another way, you can say there's a, a, a continuum from eternal to created. So when we're going to talk about Jesus, either he's human or he's divine. Either he's eternal or he's created. Let's plot some heresies on this graph, okay? So a bunch uh, called the Ebionites said that Jesus was only a man. Well, that's pretty good. He was human and he was created. 
Incidentally, that's largely the Muslim view. Yeah? There's another mob who are called the Docetists. This is your favorite word for today. Take it home, stick it on the fridge. Uh, from Dokio to Seem, it says that God always, he was always God, but he was only looking like a man. Okay? He was always God. He was only looking like a man. So in other words, he was God with a mask on. He only seemed to be human. He wasn't really human. Okay? This is the Superman answer. Okay? There's another mob called the Arius. Uh, sorry, from Arius, a guy called uh, Arius, who uh, founded this thing called Arianism, or at least the charge was that, where he said there was a time when he was not. So he's kind of God, but he was created. Eh, wrong again. There's another thing called adoptionism where you have a human being who God puts his spirit and mind into. So God adopts him, so he has a human body and a divine spirit, and they're not the same. That's called adoptionism. We don't believe in any of those ends of the... Here's where we live. We live in orthodoxy. We say something truly extraordinary. We say the eternal was born. We say that he took on... The divine took on humanity. The divine took on humanity. The eternal one was born. We hold this orthodox thing where we say he was the incarnate son of God. Now, I really am pushing you here. Let me take it to somewhere helpful. The incarnation, what does it mean? Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. How do we know this? Go to the boat. Remember the storm? Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. What does that teach me? Fully human. Then he stands up and what does he do? He rebukes the wind and says to the waves, quiet, be still. Who has the power to do that? Only God. That's what the incarnation is. Fully God and fully man. You need to be like the one you worship. And so my question today is, do you have a Jesus worthy of worship? Have you got a pet Jesus who doesn't look anything like the real Jesus? Is he the one God revealed to us? If you're going to be like the one you worship. You have to know the one you worship and you have to find him in the scriptures as he actually is. Alrighty. Uh, has anyone worn one of these before? What happens when you fall off the paddleboard, which I think is what you're designed to do? Uh, okay. You go under the water and what happens? You pop back up like a cork. Okay. All right. You're lifted up. I want you to see Jesus is lifted up. Have a look at me at verses 9 to 11. Therefore, so he died on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How beautiful are these things? Here's what happened. Jesus chose the path of humiliation. He chose the path of death on a cross for us. And here's what God did. God chose the path of exaltation. Jesus made himself low, and what did God do? At his lowest point, lifted him up and gave him the name that was above every name. This is a model for you and I. We need to follow Jesus in this. Have a listen to 1 Peter 5. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Isn't that awesome? Choose yourself to be humble, and he will lift you up in due time. Follow the path of our Lord Jesus. 
It says that he'll be given the name that is above every name. And what will that mean? That will mean that Jesus will be worshipped. He'll be worshipped by every tongue and language. Every knee will fall and bow before Jesus because of the name that he has given. I want to show you that in, in Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus came, this passage was written. It says this in Isaiah 45, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say, in the name of the Lord alone, a deliverance and strength. Have a listen to the passage in Philippians. And watch, I'm a visual person. If this doesn't help you, close your eyes. This helps me. I want you to see how they relate. Paul writes, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you see? Something, something extraordinary has happened. In the Old Testament, we see it's the name of the Lord that everyone will confess. In the New Testament, we see Jesus is given the name Lord and everyone will confess his name. The Lord promised in Isaiah is Jesus. What do we learn? The name Jesus is given is that of Lord. Jesus will be worshipped as God. Extraordinary. The world tells us we need to be like Mike. Well, not you probably. You weren't paying attention at that point in the 1990s. But it says metaphorically be like Mike, be strong, be powerful, step on others, get ahead, be competitive. The church says be like Christ. The world on the day that Jesus returns will be humbled. Those who are proud will be brought low. Every knee will bow. Those who have chosen to bow the knee now before the Lord Jesus will be exalted. That will be a day of great reversal. So the choice that we need to make then is, will we humble ourselves now and bow the knee today, or will you be forced to bow the knee when you meet Jesus in all of his majesty? One way or another, you're going to bow your knee. Choose today. Because that day will be a day of lifting up. If you don't, you'll be brought low because you'll be unable to fail to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We therefore suffer as those who know the future of the Lord Jesus. We understand he'll be back. I can put you before me today because I trust that one day Jesus will lift me up. So how should we serve the world? And how should we serve in the church? Well, in the world, I want you to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I want you to value others as more important than yourselves. I want you to look out for their needs ahead of your own because you follow the Lord Jesus who is crucified and because you are looking forward to the day when he will lift you up. Are you with me? And people go, oh, apply it for me. Do you know what? I don't know where you live. I don't know what your challenging area is, but if you take that principle in there, I promise you, you can apply this sermon. 
in the world? What about in the church? Well, in the church, we add a step that's missing in the world. We seek to uncover the unity that God has actually established in the church. So when I'm out of relationship with you, we must work to remember that God has saved you. God values you. I need to be made right with you to honor the Lord Jesus. Uncover the unity that exists. And then I need to do nothing out of selfish ambition in the church. I need to value you as more important than me in the church. I need to look to your interests before mine in the church because I follow a crucified Lord who will one day lift me up in good time. All right, let's bring it into land. Be like the one you worship. Don't be the one you worship. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the awesome picture of your son Jesus that is here. Father, we thank you for the extraordinary lengths he went to to humble himself, to be obedient even to death on a cross. Father, I think of all the messy and difficult places that we live and work and serve our family relationships. Lord, would you humble us? Out of love and devotion for you, would you help us to put others before us? Lord, even as we fight that right now, even as we're thinking of the person that we couldn't do that for, have mercy on us, Father. Refresh us in the incredible picture of your love that went to the cross. And help us to trust in the day of great reversal, where just as you lifted up your son Jesus, we'll be vindicated and honoured in your presence. Father, we want to honour Jesus, and we ask that you help us now in his name. Amen.